This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Billy Joel, and he's had some career, folks, 150 million-plus albums and records sold. That's ridiculous. In fact, he's the third biggest solo artist in record sales of all time, bigger than Springsteen, Madonna, or Michael Jackson. And we're about to tell you the story of a song, a Billy Joel song, one you may know, one you may not know, but you're about to get to know it, and it's called Lullaby. And every once in a while, Billy Joel goes around the country and talks to colleges about the music of the music business, the art of writing music, and also the business of the music business, and lots of stories in between. On one particular occasion at the University of Pennsylvania, a young mom asked Billy Joel a question about her favorite song, Lullaby, and how it came to be. Joel explained that the song came about because his daughter, who had just turned seven, had asked him some pretty tough questions. Let's take a listen. So I had this, 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 uh, this melody... which is how I write songs. I, I wrote the music first. Daddy, what happens when you die? So I said, oh, man. Okay. And I told her what I really believed. And what I really believe is what happens when you die is you go into other people's hearts that you never really go away. You go into the rest of the people that you knew. You go into the rest of their lives. They they take them with you. So, uh... But also, this was during a time when her mom and I were splitting up. So this was like a double-pronged thing, like, Daddy, are you going to leave me? And I said, I'll never leave you. I will never leave you. I'll never go away. I will never, never, ever leave you. So um, it was was a tough answer, you know, in in both respects. Joel stammers for a bit, but then sits down in front of the keyboards and starts to perform. Like a boat out on the ocean 
this point, Joel starts to stammer a little bit, gets very emotional, because, well, he doesn't give this explanation at Madison Square Garden, and my guess is he hasn't thought about the connection of how this song had been made in a very long time. But then he gets it together, steps back up to the keyboards, and closes things out with this stunning final verse. Good night, my angel, now it's time to dream, and dream how wonderful Someday your child may cry And if you sing this lullaby Then in your heart there will always Be a part of me Someday What a story. Billy Joel just trying to answer a question of his baby girls. So he wrote a song to sing to her. One she could sing to her baby girl. And her baby girl could sing to hers. Or her baby boy. It's a song all of us can sing to all of our boys and girls. It's the story of a song, and that's the thing about music. It transcends time, race, class, and geography. And that's why we love to do these stories. The story of a song, Billy Joel's Lullaby, here on Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories that touch on every part of American life. And one theme that cuts across many of our stories is the theme of innovation. And today we're joined by Tim Harford, author of a great book titled 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy. And we're going to dig into just a few more of those inventions. And by the way, we've done a bunch of segments with Tim. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and catch them all. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And Tim, today, let's start with something near and dear to us here in Mississippi, and that's air conditioning. My dad used to tell me that everyone he knew went to the movie theaters for one reason only. It wasn't whether the movie was any good or the cartoons. There was air conditioning. Talk about yeah, it. this is why we have summer blockbusters. Uh, absolutely. It's just a place to go where it's cool and the, in the heat of the sun. So air conditioning is, is a fascinating invention. There's um, a wonderful writer, Stephen Johnson, who argued that air conditioning elected Ronald Reagan. And you think, well, how does, how does that work? <laughs> well, air conditioning changed the demographics of the United States. It enabled many more people to live comfortably in Texas, in Florida, all those people retiring to Florida and then starting to vote Republican. So it's changing the political landscape of the United States. And in fact, it's, it's changing the, um, the shape of the world, really, for, for similar reasons. So you, you think about these uh, amazing new cities that are, have in the last few decades been growing uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, Shanghai, uh, it, it, Dubai. Uh, you go to these places, there is no way you can build a glass-walled skyscraper in Singapore or Dubai without air conditioning. It's completely impossible. There's no way that technology uh, will work without air conditioning. So it makes possible skyscrapers in warm climates. It make, makes a lot of things possible that, that we take for granted. Indeed. The other thing, it's a companion almost to air conditioning, not the same, but I'm skipping ahead to chapter 22, and it's the elevator. I want to read something quickly. We don't tend to think of elevators as mass transportation systems, but they are. They move hundreds of millions of people every day, and China alone is installing 700,000 elevators a year. How did elevators change the world? Well, let me just justify that statement about mass transit. Just imagine a, a building such as the, the Sears Tower in Chicago. <clears throat> I guess we call it the Willis Tower now, don't we? Or the Empire State Building in New York. Um, think about all those floors. These are roughly 80, 100 stories. Think of all those stories, and now let's just chop them into single-story or two-story buildings, and we and distribute those buildings all over a big office park, an sort of out-of-town office park, and think of all the um, all the car parks you need to have around them, and think of the enormous amount of space that that office park would take up. Now, because they're all stacked on top of each other. Um, you don't need the car parking. You don't need people driving their automobiles uh, to get to this space. You just go in on the ground floor, get in the elevator, and you can be taken to any floor in the building. So that, that's why I say it's a mass transit system. I think it, that, that's absolutely an accurate um, description. Uh, how did it shape the world? Well, it made the skyscraper possible. There is really no way you could realistically have a building more than... And that 10 stories, unless you have a functioning elevator, or actually more to the point, 
the real innovation is is the elevator brake because we've had elevators for hundreds and hundreds of years but nobody is going to get in an elevator uh, that's going to go any serious height unless it's safe and otis yeah that guy uh, elijah otis invented the elevator brake and he demonstrated it at one of these world's fairs uh, it was a hugely theatrical demonstration he was lifted up 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 above the crowd and standing behind him on this scaffolding you imagine the 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 drama of it there's a guy with an executioner's axe and he raises the axe as though he's about to strike off otis's head and he swings the axe down and he chops the elevator rope and everyone in the crowd screams and the elevator falls about a quarter of an inch and then Otis yells out to everybody, all safe, gentlemen, all safe. He's demonstrated that he has developed a safe way to make uh, the elevator work. And they are, in fact, incredibly safe. They make skyscrapers possible. And they're really in- enormously efficient. So the, the people who are, who are concerned about energy efficiency and they talk about double glazing, they talk about insulation, they talk about all the ways that you can uh, reduce the fuel consumption of a building. One of the, the best ways of all is an elevator because you shift a lot of people using a counterweight, pack them all into a very dense area, and you can have a, a very low environmental impact city like Manhattan, very low environmental impact, and yet still generate a tremendous amount of, uh, of uh, economic output, of, of income. And it's all possible because of the elevator. Indeed. Let's talk about the barcode. Now, that doesn't seem too glamorous, but without the barcode, my goodness, Walmart, Home Depot, none of this stuff is possible, is it? Uh, no, it, it isn't. And I, I should say on the subjects of glamour, the idea of, of this book, the, the 50 inventions that, that shape the modern economy, it's not to pick the 50 most important inventions. It, it's to try to surprise people a little bit and to get them to look at everyday objects in a, in a different way. And the barcode's one of the, one of the great examples of that. So, um, so the barcode was, um, was invented several times, really. But, but the, the real inventive moment, and I'm drawing a blank on the, the um, inventor's name for a second. It may come to me. And he was, um, he was sitting at, at the beach. He was visiting his uh, grandparents. And he was thinking of the time he'd spent as a Boy Scout communicating in Morse code. And he'd been trying to figure out this problem. How do I create an automated till? And um, he dragged his fingers in a lazy circle through the sand and then he looked down and he he saw he'd created a kind of um, bullseye with his fingers the ridges and the troughs and he realized he could use those ridges and troughs to uh, convey a code morse code and so the original barcodes were in fact bullseyes the idea of the bullseye is well you can scan it in in any direction doesn't make any uh, any difference it's always the same Um, in the end of course the modern barcode is linear uh, and it took several decades to get the computers cheap enough and the lasers cheap enough to make it uh, a practical technology. But once it was there, well, actually, I should say before it was there, there was a huge debate in the retail industry. You had the big retailers, you had the food manufacturers, and everybody was arguing rooms full of lawyers over the barcode. And they were arguing for a good reason, because they knew that 
the exact design of the barcode, how it was put together, who had to pay for the infrastructure. These things were going to make a big difference. They were going to advantage some retailers. They were going to disadvantage others. So there were these huge fights. Uh, and of course, the the retailers didn't want to put the, the barcode scanners in until the food manufacturers had barcodes on their products. And the food manufacturers didn't want to bother putting barcodes on their products until the scanners existed to read them. So there was this all this kind of you go first thing. I mean, um, Miller, I think, had been printing their labels on their beer bottles using the same technology for about six, 60 or 70 years. So the idea that you're going to retool in order to print these crazy barcodes, not very attractive. But in the end, it was it was done. And as you say, it empowered Walmart and the, the real big box retailers because it solved a problem that they had about keeping track of stock, about keeping the staff on the, the checkout, keeping them honest. So they didn't put money in their own pocket. Everything was scanned through. It solved a problem they had and that the, the mom and pop shops didn't have because they, they knew what was on the shelves and what was running low. They weren't going to steal from themselves. So it really tilted the playing field in favor of, of, the, of the big players. And Walmart in particular, I think people underestimate how important Walmart was in integrating the American economy with the Chinese economy. They made a huge contribution there, whether you like it or not, um, to introducing these very, very cheap goods. And they couldn't have done it without the barcode. And by the way, that young man was Joseph Woodland, and he was a graduate student at the Drexel Institute in Philadelphia. He was the one pondering that, that problem on a beach. He was indeed. And the other story about Woodland is he, he also designed a, a device to play Muzak in elevators. And his father advised him not to go down that path because he said, oh, the elevator business is dominated by the mafia. I've got no idea if this is true, but that's what he was told. The elevator business is dominated by the ma mafia. You don't want to go in there with your Muzak machine. Invent something else. And he invented the barcode. And you've been listening to Tim Harford, author of 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear more of this remarkable book. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. stories and we love history here on our show and all of our this day in histories are brought to us by the great folks at hillsdale college a terrific place to study all the things that matter in life all the things that are beautiful in life and if you can't get to hillsdale hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses go to hillsdale.edu and take the economics the c.s lewis course and so many more they're all free they're all wonderful for homeschoolers, for family schooling. Heck, if you've been to college, it's the college education you didn't get in college. And now on to our This Day in History. And on this day, Rosa Parks was born in 1913. She was an African-American woman in the 1950s, living under the unjust Jim Crow laws. 
Faith brings us the story. The time had just come when I had been pushed as far as I could stand to be pushed, I suppose. I hadn't thought that I would be the person to do this. It hadn't occurred to me. On December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks found herself being arrested. Why? Because she refused to give up her seat to a white passenger. Rosa Parks and her husband Raymond were good working-class folks. Raymond worked as a barber and Rosa as a seamstress for a department store. But her arrest all began on just a seemingly normal day. I left work on my way home December 1st, 1955, about 6 o'clock in the afternoon. I boarded the bus downtown in Montgomery on Coates Square as the uh, bus uh, proceeded out of town on the third stop. The white passengers had filled the front of the bus. When I got on the bus, the rear was filled with uh, colored passengers and they were beginning to stand. The seat I occupied was the face of the seats where the Negro passengers uh, take as they, on this route. The driver noted that the front of the bus was filled with white passengers and there would be uh, two or three men standing. He looked back and asked that the seat where I had taken along with three other persons, one in the seat with me and two across the aisle was seated he demanded the seat that we were occupying. The other passengers very reluctantly gave up their seats, but I refused to do so. He then called the officers of the law. They came and placed me under arrest, and I was bond bailed out shortly after the arrest. And the trial was held December 5th on the next Monday, and the protests began from that day. I felt that I was not being treated right and that I had a right to retain the seat that I had taken as a passenger on the bus. Well, we didn't know uh, just what to expect. In our area, we always try to avoid trouble and be as careful as possible to stay out of trouble and along this line. I want to make very certain that it is understood that I had not taken a seat in the white section, as has been reported in many cases. I was very much surprised that the driver at this point demanded that I remove myself from the seat. The driver said that if I refused to leave the seat, he would have to call the police, and I told him, just call the police, which he did, and when they, they came, they placed me under arrest. I didn't feel afraid. I, I had decided that I would have to know once and for all what rights I had as a human being and a citizen, even in Montgomery, Alabama. 
What exactly was her crime? Violation of the segregation law of the city and state of Alabama transportation. From the time of the arrest on Thursday night and Friday and Saturday and Sunday, the word had gotten around over Montgomery of, of my arrest because of this uh, incident. And people just began to decide that they wouldn't uh, ride the bus on the day of my trial, which was uh, Monday, December 5th. All of this upheaval led to the Montgomery bus boycott. A boycott that lasted over a year. I feel they kept on walking because I was not the only person who had been mistreated and humiliated. Others had gone through the same experience, some even worse experience than mine. And they all felt that the time had come that they should decide that we would have to stop supporting the bus company until we were given better service. The buses are empty. Why? Because the Negro people aren't riding them. Because one woman, a seamstress, got fed up with her 40 years of living under Jim Crow. Because one woman said, I have had enough. And suddenly, just like that, 50,000 voices answered, Amen, sister, enough for us too. It began with the buses in Montgomery, but so much more is at stake now, for this is a part of a struggle going on around the world, for the right to enjoy decent homes like anyone else, to work at better jobs for higher pay, and the right to live longer too. The right to an equal place in the family of man. I think this came about because the ministers were very much interested in it and we had our meetings in the churches and being the minority we felt that nothing could be gained by violence or threats or a belligerent attitude we believed that more could be accomplished through the nonviolent passive resistance we had no quarrel with anyone we only want to stop riding the buses until we are treated as any other passenger. Rosa Parks had had enough. The tension had been rising, and it was only a matter of time. Here is Dr. Felicia Bell, the director of the Rosa Parks Museum, discussing the intensity of the segregation and the racially hostile environment. Well, you know, segregation was, was an intense, rigid system of separating blacks and whites. And I mean, down to the cemeteries, down to the pages in the phone books were separated uh, by black people and white people. So everything, every aspect of life was meant to uh, make black folks aware that white people were superior. And uh, even in entrances to buildings, uh, so-called colored entrances were, you even see today on some of the old buildings where the colored entrances were smaller doorways or lower steps. 
separate water fountains, separate uh, facilities for everything. Every aspect of life was meant to demean and to humiliate and to keep black folks suppressed and oppressed. And when we come back, we continue this story. My goodness, hearing Rosa Parks in her own words. She was born on this day in history in 1913. More with Our American Stories after these messages. we return to the story of Rosa Parks, who was born on this day in history in 1913. After refusing to give up her seat on a bus to a white passenger, she had been arrested, and this ultimately led to the Montgomery bus boycott. We left off with Dr. Felicia Bell, the director of the Rosa Parks Museum in Montgomery, Alabama, discussing the effects of racial segregation. So the effects of segregation on Mr. and Mrs. Parks was one that they witnessed among their friends. They saw how, for instance, she was not the first woman, black woman, to be arrested for sitting in a white section on a bus. So they saw other women in the community being harassed by these bus drivers. They saw, you know, the effects of children being harassed, which just before her arrest was the Brown decision, so uh, <clears throat> desegregating public schools, which did not immediately take place. These bus drivers have policing powers, so they have uh, firearms. Sometimes these firearms actually went off on buses, uh, and they have policing power to uh, have you arrested, or to arrest you. So. Um, when he asked her to give up her seat, he was actually in the wrong because she was seated in uh, legally. You know, racism is something on the inside. That was a decision Mr. Blake made on his own to make her get out of her seat because she was not seated illegally. And it is his own bigotry, racism that he is asserting as well. She, there were two or three other folks on the same row that did get out of their seats, uh, African-American passengers, and Mrs. Parks remained seated and quiet. Rosa Parks reacted to the bus driver with an overwhelming sense of calmness. How was it that she was able to do this? Six months or so prior to this moment, uh, Mrs. Parks was at the Highlander Folk School in Tennessee, uh, in the mountains of Tennessee, um, and there was where she trained on uh, civil disobedience and uh, peaceful protest. They held integrated workshops, and this was her first time uh, in a classroom setting with white people and she quite enjoyed it. 
uh, maybe intimidated a little bit at first, but then she really enjoyed the, uh, the sessions and uh, that's uh, where they trained and learned about how to resist um, segregation and unjust laws uh, peacefully. So she was already, you know, trained in that. So when the driver told her to get out of her seat, she just simply said no. And then uh, he, that was part of the training, to always assert yourself clearly and in simple terms. And then the driver said, if you don't get out of your seat, something to the effect, I'll have you arrested. And, and then she just said, you may do that. Prior to Mrs. Park's arrest, there were several other women who were arrested, including Miss Claudette Colvin, who was a 15-year-old girl who was arrested. The Montgomery Improvement Association met, uh, had a mass meeting at Hull Street Baptist Church, and a uh, young pastor of Dexter Avenue Church, uh, who was new in town and had a young family and a wife, he was there as well, and uh, his name was Dr. Martin Luther King, and he um, led the meeting, and he was elected to be the president of the Montgomery Improvement Association. And so at this mass meeting also, they uh, decided what demands they wanted out of this, what would be a, a boycott, a 382-day boycott. Uh, and so one of those demands was to be treated with respect as passengers. Uh, then also they wanted uh, the city bus, they wanted uh, African American men to be hired as bus drivers on city buses. So that was actually a job for white men. Black men couldn't be bus drivers. So that was one of their demands. And thirdly, they wanted um, first-come, first-served seating on buses. The demands of the boycott would not be easily met, and the participants of the boycott would have to stay strong through some very harsh conditions. All four seasons of weather, walking in the rain and the cold and the heat, um, taking carpools and uh, there were all kinds of obstacles in terms of um, uh, taxis being banned or insurance companies not insuring taxis so they couldn't have taxi services so they uh, had they set up a system of pickup locations through the city and you could catch a uh, ride in what were called rolling churches. So uh, these were station wagons with the names of churches on the side of them where the churches sponsored that station wagon. And then you would be picked up and then rather than paying that driver, which that would make it a taxi and illegal, you would just uh, put money in the offering of a church on Sunday that was on the side of the vehicle. So then that way that money paid for the gas and the maintenance and the driver and that. So they, there was strategy involved <clears throat> with the protest and they met frequently. It wasn't just, we're not going to ride the buses. So 
there was a lot of strategy involved in the process in making it successful. The results of the boycott did not come till the following December. The court ruled that the buses in Montgomery, Alabama be integrated. But then that was appealed. However, the Supreme Court overruled that appeal. So the buses were integrated. However, the bus stops were not. This was just one step closer to justice. Obviously, the church was greatly involved with the Montgomery bus boycott. We really cannot ignore the faith aspect of the entire civil rights movement. You know, really the civil rights movement in general, I think you could say, was largely led by people who were very faith conscious, you know, from Dr. King on down. Uh, so there were many people, uh, clerical members who were uh, leaders in, in, in the uh, movement. And in general, I think uh, the sense of faith and, and um, the uh, principles of Christianity, I think, is and was what shaped the nonviolent civil rights movement. There have also been some misconceptions about the situation that happened with Rosa Parks on the bus. One of one misconception is that Mrs. Parks was tired when she got off of work, and that's why she didn't give up her seat. She was not. Um, I think when we perpetuate that myth, um, what is happening is that we're diminishing this militant act this woman did. She didn't not give up her seat because she was tired. She, she didn't give up her seat because she was resisting segregation. She was resisting oppression. Uh, she was resisting the system. And so when we say her feet were tired, it diminishes all, it just erases all of that. Rosa Parks, by remaining in her seat, made a stand against the injustices of segregation. We leave off with a word from Mrs. Parks herself, from a speech she gave in 1995. As I look back on the, those days, it's just like a dream. And I only thing that bothered me was that we waited so long to make this protest and to let it be known wherever we go that all of us should be free and equal and have all opportunities that others should have. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, to Faith, who took a road trip to Montgomery uh, to visit the Rosa Parks Museum there. And thanks to Dr. Felicia Bell, the director of the Rosa Parks Museum. If you ever get a chance, visit. And visit so many of these great civil rights museums. They're so important. And what happened here in this country in the South, but also in the North. There was plenty of segregation there, too, and it wasn't by law. I want to end with a quote from Rosa Parks, and this is what she had to say at that moment of confrontation 
back in 1955. She said, I instantly felt God give me the strength to endure whatever would happen next. God's peace flooded my soul and my fear melted away. All people were equal in the eyes of God and I was going to live like the true person God created me to be. Rosa Parks' story, in her words, born on this day in history in 1913. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. They say that dogs are man's best friend, but what about the cats? And by the way, we have a lot of talks here as we prepare our show about dogs and cats and food uh, and other such things. The things that matter in life, right? And, you know, there are cat people, there are dog people, and we're not here to have an opinion about either. Though I have four pugs that all weigh in under 35 pounds, to which Stan says those aren't dogs, those are cats. And uh, I, I disagree, Stan, but, you know, he's got his point. And then, of course, there are the cat folks, and we own a cat. We have a cat named Spunky, a boy, and he kills, well, anything that moves. And he's an outdoor cat that lives on our patio furniture, occasionally comes indoors, walks around for about five minutes and goes, I'm out of here. Can't stand it. Too boring. And wants to go right back outside and hunt and do all the things that Spunky does. Well, oftentimes for cities, cats are disposable. And here is one of our Hillsdale interns, Monty Montgomery, with a story about an organization that is sticking up for the kitty cats. Cats in America are facing a serious problem. Cats aren't being adopted from the McDowell County Animal Shelter. You've got uh, so many sources, internet, that give them away free, so it's hard for us to compete. It's $65 to adopt a cat from here. That pays for shots and spaying. Plus, Blevin says cats are just not adopted as often as dogs. And these obstacles are reflected in the shelter's 95% kill rate for cats. But one Kansas City nonprofit organization is doing something unique to solve this feline crisis. KC Pet Project is a nonprofit organization that operates Kansas City, Missouri Animal Shelter, and we take in over 10,000 pets a year here in our largest no-kill shelter actually in Kansas City, and we do a lot of great work with adoptions all around the community. We adopt out well over 6,700 pets each year. Some of that involves um, some really fun training things with our cats. Training cats? It's not as crazy as it seems, and the Kansas City Pet Project is doing just that. In 2017, we had a different scenario than we've ever had before where we adopted out more cats than we did dogs for the first time since taking over the shelter. And a lot of that is because we do clicker training with all of our cats every morning. So we try to associate whenever people come in first thing in the morning, they hear that clicker, they get a treat, and then they start their cleaning process um, throughout the day. So the first positive interaction that they have every day is with a human, so that way they know that from here on out, they're going to, um, that human is going to take care of them and we can clean around them and help, um, you know, with some other enrichment things throughout the day. 
And that clicker training leads cats to learn how to high-five, among all things. But how does this training work exactly? Every time that the cat does something even close to what the trainer wants, such as lifting a paw, it hears a click and gets a treat and begins associating that action with getting the treat. Every time the cat puts its paw in the trainer's hand, click. Every time the cat high-fives, click. This seems bizarre, but it absolutely works and is rooted in a concept called positive reinforcement. We're also teaching some cats how to do tricks. We've been able to be successful with uh, teaching cats how to high-five and do some other tricks through clicker training, even things like fetch that you wouldn't normally associate um, cats doing. So cats, the pessimists of the animal kingdom, now seem more sociable to potential adopters, which has led to some fantastic results for the organization founded just six years ago. We started here as uh, a brand new organization here in Kansas City, Missouri, and in our first year took in nearly 8,000 pets and ended with over 90% uh, what we call a live release rate in the shelter industries. Basically all animals that are coming in, over 90% of them were leaving through positive outcomes and that's through adoptions, through returning pets back home to the, their owners and with working with rescue partners all over the country and even beyond. Um, we've been able to transfer some pets to Canada in the past. And through Casey Pet Project's hard and dedicated work, cats are being given back their nine lives. Cats are just flying um, out of these adoption centers. We've ever been able to take our length of stay down from 41 days to about 25 days now, which helps us in so many ways. It helps us save more lives. Um, it helps with our, um, you know, our expenses and everything on those cats. If they're not there longer, then, um, you know, we're not having to spend as much on those cats because they're getting into homes faster. And actually, the cats are a lot healthier in the long run, too. So it's a really interesting program because they're less stressed, they're happier, um, they have, you know, sort of this great um, routine that they go through every day with our staff, and we're helping them become more adoptable so they can get into homes faster. And thanks for that story, Monty. It's always nice to see and hear from organizations going out of their way to do something creative in order to solve a public problem. And I gotta tell you, that's really creative. Cat tricks, fetching, my, my dogs don't fetch. I wanna send the pugs to the Kansas City Pet Project and see if we can get some high-fiving pugs when they leave that actually fetch. That'd be worth, well, I'd pay good money to see that happen. Again, that's the Kansas City Pet Project and what they're doing to save animals' lives is just well, it's just fantastic. So many cats just have to get put down around this country. And it's sad. No one ever wants to see that happen. But sometimes that's what you got to do because sticking feral cats out into the population, especially rural areas, just makes life, well, just a lot tougher for so many other animals. And my goodness, 41 days down to 25 days. I mean, this is really remarkable what they're doing. And again, our hats off to Kansas City Pet Project. And here at Our American Stories, we love to tell every kind of story. If you're interested in getting our newsletter, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up. We'll send you five great stories every week. That's five great stories every week. Sign up on our newsletter, OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll send you five great stories 
and that's both in audio form and in transcript form too. You can read it, you can listen to it however you want it. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And once again, hat tip to our Hillsdale intern, Monty Montgomery, the Kansas City Pet Project, their story, and the saving of so many kitty cats' lives, their stories. High five and cat stories here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from sports to arts and from business to history. And this story, well, it's the latter. It's history. In the nation's capital, the sun glitters on stone monuments to our first president, George Washington, and our third, Thomas Jefferson. John Adams, the second president of the United States, was every bit as brave as the former and as brilliant as the latter but there is no such monument for him. Yet no one, not even Washington or Jefferson, did as much to convince the colonies to break from England. Perhaps this is fitting because Stone is cold and he was anything but. Alas, we must see that the United States alone serves as the proper living monument to this intense, cranky, warm heart on his sleeve founding father. What we are about to do now is precise. Instead of telling the all-encompassing story of John Adams, we are going to dial it in on one specific moment in his life, one that best captures this man's humanity and ideals more than any other. And as we will soon learn, Adams himself will agree with our selection. Here to give us a quick overarching Reader's Digest-like version of Adams is none other than author and historian David McCullough, the man who's written the definitive biography of John Adams, the book in which HBO based its 2008 award-winning miniseries. Here's McCullough answering the question, what event most personified the life and character of John Adams? I think it's his defense of the uh, British soldiers in the Boston Massacre trial. That's where you see what that man's made of. Here was a man who was on the political rise. He was brilliant, he was well-read, he was tenacious, he was a very skillful practicing lawyer, and young still. And then the soldiers were captured and they were, everybody in the whole Commonwealth were looking forward to having them executed. But they had to be represented in the trial and no one would represent them. No one would defend them. And Adams said, if we really believe that everybody deserves uh, legal defense in a trial, we better live up to what we say we believe. I'll defend them. And he did so certain that it was going to ruin any ambitions he had to play a part. And he had a terrific wife. He's the only founding father. Most people don't know this, but I think it's so important 
the only founding father who never owned a slave as a matter of principle. And his wife felt the same way. She saw that slavery was a sin, evil, unjust, un-American. And they never changed in that point of view whatsoever. Let's now take a deep dive into the story of John Adams and his legendary defense of the British soldiers at the 1770 trial of the Boston Massacre. Here's Greg Henry. It takes slightly more than four decades from the first rumblings of discontent for the 13 loosely aligned colonies comprising New England to be transformed into one of the largest and most prosperous nations on earth. It starts with a simple idea that all men deserve to be treated equally and becomes the great experiment that will change the world. But before the anger of colonial Americans boils over into the most epic of revolutions, it begins as a daily struggle. In all 13 colonies under British rule, at the epicenter of the struggle is the seaport city of Boston. By 1760, 130 years after being founded by the Puritans, Boston is thriving. While in theory, its commerce is regulated by the British trade laws, in fact, these laws are rarely enforced. That changes in 1761 with England's economy struggling thanks to the 10,000 British troops protecting their American colonies from the French. Here's historian Andrew O'Shaughnessy and screenwriter of the 2008 HBO miniseries John Adams, Kirk Ellis. The reason that they taxed America was because of the French and Indian War. It so bankrupted the British Treasury that there had to be ways in which they could make up for this lost revenue, and they decided to tax the colonies. But, as they've always done, Americans ignore the taxes. So Britain takes action. New tax laws and anti-smuggling searches turn revenue collection into combative encounters. Here's historian Andrew Nelson. And this includes something called the Writs of Assistance, which is essentially a warrant where the British can search anyone's property freely. The British Army is no longer in America to protect colonists. It has become an occupying force. Along with invasive laws allowing search and seizure, England responds with the Stamp Act of 1765, a broad tax targeting every American colonist. The Stamp Act required that all official correspondence from newspapers to documentation, even playing cards, had to be produced on paper that bore an official stamp purchased from a customs agent. Even though it isn't described as a tax, it is of course a tax. And this leads to opposition. When most people think of the Founding Fathers, they envisioned wig-wearing politicians debating on the floor of some legislative body but they in fact did their organizing in a bar, a tavern in Boston called the Green Dragon. The Boston Tea Party was planned here, and Paul Revere was sent from the Green Dragon to Lexington on his famous ride. It is here where their fight begins, not yet for independence, but for the equal treatment under the law as the British citizens they believe they are. Behind the power of these laws, English customs agents begin ransacking homes and businesses. A group of patriots formed to fight British oppression, 
most notably the Stamp Act, they call themselves the Sons of Liberty. Sons of Liberty is an association of men who are looking to prompt situations that will lead to a disturbance that will force the attention of the Crown. The Sons of Liberty weren't just in Boston. They were very quickly organized and strewn throughout the original 13 colonies. The founder of what could be called General of the Sons of Liberty is John Adams' cousin, 43-year-old Samuel Adams. Here's colonial historian Marvin Kitman. Sam Adams was a real rebel with a cause, and the reason for it was in his personal life. He had been a failure in everything that he did until the revolution. His father gave him a lot of money to start a business. He lost all the money. He's one of these people who become obsessed with a cause and just put their personal life aside. If Sam Adams is the general of the Sons of Liberty, his colonels are John Hancock, the wealthiest man in Boston and the second wealthiest in the colonies, and goldsmith Paul Revere. Legend relegates Revere as a mere lookout who shouts from the top of a horse. But Paul Revere is both a salesman and a strategist, a multi-talented patriot who organizes tough men into a force for liberty. As the atmosphere in Boston turns incendiary, Paul Revere leads something of a guerrilla army that uses tactics of fear and violence intent on intimidating the king's tax collectors out of existence. What is known as the Stamp Act riots spread quickly throughout the 13 colonies. Here's historian extraordinaire Tony Williams. They were tearing down the stamp collectors' homes. They were burning these customs officials and the royal governor in effigy. And so there's a great deal of popular enthusiasm and even violence. The Stamp Act riots renders the man enforcing British rule in Massachusetts, Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson, powerless to collect taxes. With no colonial taxes being collected, the British Parliament is in a state of panic. Here's historian David Eisenbach. You have to remember at Parliament, they're dealing with an empire that is stretching all around the world. If they allow the abuse of tax collectors in Boston, that would encourage lawlessness all around. They decided we've got to make an example by putting more troops in Boston to kind of clamp down on the troublemakers. And what a story. And when we come back, this story setting up, well, like a showdown, like high noon. And we're putting you where we always put you, right there on the streets, in the context, in the history itself. When we come back, more of John Adams' story more of the story of the Boston Massacre trial and the circumstances that brought us there. John Adams' story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we return where we last left off. Boston is under military occupation by the British troops trying to clamp down on colonial troublemakers. Here's Greg Hengler. Oh, there's no turning back for me. England dispatches two military regiments to Massachusetts from New York to keep order, adding fuel to the fire. Boston is now under military occupation. Lafayette, there's no turning back now. In 1768, four more regiments sailed from England to Boston. By 1770, 2,000 British troops occupied this city of 15,000. For Paul Revere, the occupation of British military presents an opportunity. He creates a propaganda piece he calls Landing of the Troops. As it travels throughout the colonies, so does the fear of military occupation. With a British army camp in the center of their city, Bostonians have a constant reminder of their own repression, while rank-and-file British soldiers start to wonder, who has it worse? Here's historians H.W. Brands, Andrew Nelson, and Denver Brunsman. These British soldiers are a long way from home, young men who are frightened. Most of them have hardly the slightest idea of what the political debate is. They're told by their officers, you need to keep peace. For many of the soldiers arriving, America had been a faraway place that you read about in the newspaper. But when they get there, they see what all the fuss was about. This really is a suggestion of a much better life than America. So desertion becomes a serious problem. One hallmark of a professional army at this time is a high state of discipline, physical, corporal punishment for various crimes. And the punishment of choice was the lash. Punishment for desertion could bring up to 250 lashes. Contrary to popular history, the derogatory term of lobster back for British soldiers doesn't have anything to do with the red coats they wear. The term comes from the welts and the scars many men have on their backs from being whipped. The flame that will ignite the American Revolution is lit on Thursday morning, February 22, 1770, when, according to the Boston Gazette, a barbarous murder was committed on the body of a young lad of about 11 years of age. Christopher Sider is a young rebel in a Sons of Liberty offshoot group known as the Liberty Boys. So Sam Adams' idea to protest the taxes is to get all of the colonies together to join in on a boycott against English merchants. The Sons of Liberty proclaims that no British goods will be sold. Not everybody adheres to that boycott. Samuel Adams and the Sons of Liberty are not above marking that place with manure on the door. They're not above breaking the windows of that place. That dark morning, Cider and a crowd of 60 young men marched defiantly through Boston's cobblestone streets with a cart overflowing with rotten fruit used to mark the windows of those merchants who refused to respect the boycott of all British goods. These British sympathizers are known as loyalists or Tories. Walking down the street, the mob sees Ebenezer Richardson, who was an informant to the customs house about uh, various merchants who were not paying their taxes. Get up! Stopping in front of Ebenezer Richardson's house, the young men begin throwing rubbish into his yard. 
The rubbish is thrown back by Richardson's wife, Kezia. But soon, rocks are hurled and the Richardsons retreat into their secure home. As the intensity grows, windows are shattered and an egg hits Kezia. Richardson grabs his musket loaded with swan shot and stands defiantly musket high at his second story window. He fires once. It is intended to be a warning, he later swears, but Christopher Sider is hit in his chest and abdomen by 11 pieces of shot the size of large peas. One of our Liberty boys. Most people believe the Revolutionary War is triggered by a shot from a British soldier on Lexington Green, but the conflict is actually set into motion five years earlier when Liberty boy Christopher Sider becomes the first American martyr to die for the cause of freedom. There's nothing I can do. Samuel Adams made this into a huge public spectacle and there was a great deal of anger in Boston. They stage an incredibly elaborate funeral with a bedecked coffin that gains mourners as it passes through town. Among the more than 2,000 Bostonians who attend the funeral is John Adams. Here he is from his diary. Mine eyes have never seen such a funeral. This shows that there are many more lives to be spent if wanted in service to their country. This shows, too, that the faction is not yet expiring and that the ardor of the people is not to be quelled by the slaughter of one child. It's in full view, this outpouring of sentiment over the loss of one individual who symbolizes the promise of what many people think should be an independent nation. This boy's death becomes propaganda for Samuel Adams and the Sons of Liberty. And this is like a match to light the fuse that will explode into the American Revolution. In the days that follow the funeral, tension in Boston reaches a climax. On the frigid, moonlit evening of March 5, 1770, less than two weeks after Sider's burial, an angry, boisterous, and mostly intoxicated citizen mob roamed through the snow-covered, cobbled streets, hurling insults and threats at British soldiers. Two Bostonians break into two meeting houses and begin ringing the church bells, the alarm for fire, and almost at once, crowds come pouring into the streets. The city is alive with danger. By 8 o'clock, two British soldiers are attacked and beaten. Then, a large mob of colonists, as many as 200 strong and armed with sticks and clubs, gather in front of the Custom House on King Street, guarded by a lone British sentry. The time is shortly after nine. Words are exchanged and the sentry strikes a Bostonian with the butt of his musket, knocking him to the ground. The British want to demonstrate that we hold the power and you guys better do what we tell you to do. Captain Preston leads out the guard. They form around the front of the customs house. And at that point, the situation escalates and a mob starts to grow. British Captain Thomas Preston dispatches seven men to the custom house to, as he says, protect the sentry and the king's money. The more force the British bring to bear, the more radical the situation gets. The mob launches oyster shells and rocks packed in snowballs at the soldiers and dare them to shoot, yelling, fire, fire. The soldiers with muskets drawn and fixed bayonets are in a state of panic when suddenly a British private receives a severe blow to the head with a club 
and falls to the ground, causing his musket to discharge. In the melee, the soldiers open fire. Just days after Christopher Sider is buried, five more American colonists join him as martyrs in the struggle for freedom. What will be known as the Boston Massacre will be the rallying cry for colonists to fight for the unalienable rights we cherish today. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We will all regret this day. And when we come back, we'll continue with the final segment of this remarkable story, and we're picking the Boston Massacre trial and honing in on this one particular point in John Adams' life because it reveals so much about his nature, about his character, and what he really believed in. In the end, the deep principles that helped him and so many like him formulate the founding principles of our country. Hard ones to live by at the time, though. When we continue, the life of John Adams, the Boston Massacre trial, and the story of our nation's founding here on Our American Story. continue with the story of John Adams. Just days after Liberty Boy Christopher Sider is buried, five more American colonists join him as martyrs in the struggle for freedom. What will be known as the Boston Massacre will be the rallying cry for colonists to fight for the unalienable rights we cherish today, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Here's Greg Hengler. We will all regret this day. The Boston Massacre becomes a huge propaganda effort for Samuel Adams and the Sons of Liberty. You've got an immediately famous engraving by Paul Revere. It is one of the most inaccurate pieces of propaganda ever produced by an American press. Almost nothing in it is correct. This is treason! This is an early instance in the colonies of the power of what we now call media to shape the public opinion. Paul Revere's sensationalized engraving is considered one of the most effective pieces of propaganda in American history showing an orderly line of redcoats firing in unison into an unprovoked and unarmed crowd of patriots with blood spurting out of their bodies. Boston newspapers are quick to print and distribute Revere's version. John Adams is a short, chubby, and very pious fifth-generation descendant of Puritans who settled in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1632. After 12 years of practicing law, the 34-year-old Adams is working in his office when a prosperous merchant named James Forrest knocks on his door the day after yes? the massacre. Mr. Adams, my name is Forrest. What happened to you? With tears streaming in his eyes, as Adam writes years later, the loyalist desperately asks Adams to defend Captain Preston and his men against the murder charges. Not even a single loyalist would take the case. No one else would plead his case. 
As Boston's most respected attorneys and political leaders, it would appear inconceivable that he would risk his reputation and his own safety, as well as the safety of his pregnant wife, Abigail, and their young son and future sixth president of the United States, John Quincy Adams, by agreeing to defend British men who were considered cold-blooded killers of American patriots. It will be John Adams' first murder trial. On the surface, it would appear that the distinction between the Adams cousins is made clearer when John takes the case to defend British soldiers. But behind the scenes, Samuel Adams' belief in the rights of man are deeper than his in-the-open, rough-and-tumble political tactics. John Adams was not eager to take the task. But Samuel persuaded his cousin on the basis of justice that these men deserved the best defense. That was an argument that could always sway John Adams. The trial in front of a packed courtroom begins on October 24th at Boston's new courthouse on Queen Street. John Adams draws upon his personal mistrust of mobs to construct a masterful defense of the British soldiers. Here's Kirk Ellis and John Adams from his autobiography and from the trial. He develops a defense that is based on the fact that this was a mob that was created and a situation of escalating violence was building. The part I took in defense of Captain Preston and the soldiers was the most exhausting and fatiguing cause I ever tried for hazarding my popularity and for incurring suspicions and prejudices which will never be forgotten as long as the history of this period is read. John Adams' ace in the hole trials is a deathbed confession from Patrick Carr. And what was it he said? He said he fired to defend himself. To defend himself! The doctor's testimony of Patrick Carr recounting a dying man's last words would be considered inadmissible, hearsay. But puritanical thinking gives John Adams an advantage. Justice Peter Oliver and the jury accept the deathbed testimony as irrefutable since it is believed that no one would dare lie so close before stepping into eternity to face God's final judgment. In instructing the jury, Justice Oliver addresses the complexities of the case when he tells them, If upon the whole ye are in any reasonable doubt of their guilt, ye must then declare them innocent. It marks the first known time a judge has used the phrase reasonable doubt in an American courtroom. Adams' defending argument to the jury includes this statement that has echoed throughout American courtrooms for longer than two centuries. Facts are stubborn things. See, whatever our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictums of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. We, the jury... The trial of Captain Preston lasts six days, and that of his troops lasts nine. Not guilty. These will be the first criminal trials in the colony's history to extend more than a single day. Not guilty. 
Adam's compelling defense wins an acquittal for six of the soldiers, and two are found guilty of manslaughter, for which they are branded with an M for murder on their thumbs. This session adjourned. It is not only the soldiers Adams defends, but the law itself, which must remain free from man's politics, passions, and ever-shifting beliefs. Far from ruining his career, Bostonians realize that John Adams has won a victory for the colonies. He has shown England that colonists understand what justice means. The trial solidifies John Adams as the most respected and gifted legal mind in Boston, perhaps all of the colonies. For his part, Adams remembers the case with pride as one of the best pieces of service I ever rendered, one one of of the the most most gallant, manly, and disinterested actions of my whole life, and one of the best pieces of service I ever rendered my country. But to put that brilliant mind to use towards American independence, Sam Adams and his Sons of Liberty must first convince him to join them in open rebellion. Because when their struggle turns to war, they will need John Adams to persuade a people to defy their king and define the ideals of freedom and liberty upon which America will be built. Let's end this story with the man who started it. Here again is historian and John Adams biographer, David McCullough. I like to give credit where credit's due. In many cases, long overdue. I felt that way with John Adams. You remember the great scene in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid when the posse is chasing them and they're, the posse is not only keeping up with them, they're starting to gain a little bit. And one of them says to the other, who are those guys? And then they look again and they're getting closer and they're riding as well or better than Butch and Sundance are. And the other one said, who, who are those guys? And then who are those guys? Well, that's the way I feel very often. Who were those founding fathers? And the more you know them, the better you know them, the more you realize how extraordinary what they did is because they were so human. And they had flaws and failings and had moments of gloom and despair, just like all of us. And yet they kept going. I know that it it lifts us in spirit. It lifts us in our love of appreciation of those to whom we owe so much, but it also lifts us in an outlook on life that, for lack of of another word, I would call optimistic. Now, it's not fashionable intellectually to be an optimist, but I am, because I've seen in my work again and again and again, it works out. They do it. They get there. And if there's a problem, if there's an overwhelming calamity, the nation's whole security and future is at stake, we've come through it. And so when people start saying, oh, it's a country's going to hell, well, sure, it always has been. And and we're doing just fine. And then when people say, well, the taxes are too high and the cost of this and these damn politicians, I say, would you rather live somewhere else? Oh, no, 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 of course not. Aren't we lucky? Aren't we really lucky to live in this country? And isn't it wonderful sometimes to be reminded that we are a good people and we've had great people bring us to where we are? Yes, there were terrible, rotten people, of course, and there was 
There were scoundrels and scamps and crooks and murderers, but there always have been, always will be. And just don't ever let us get so down about what might be happening at the moment in the way of less than admirable human beings. But remember how many good people there are and how much progress is being made in our own time beneficial to a better life. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg, and it's always a pleasure to hear from David McCullough. And this story, well, it tells you everything about John Adams, that one moment in your life when you're up against everybody else, when you're alone, and it's you and your principles and how you act upon them, well, it determines who you are, and it determined who John Adams was, no doubt. Great to hear this story and remind us of the founders of this great country. And it always reminds us of Hillsdale College as well. And they do all of our This Day in Histories. And whenever we do a history segment, we always like to plug their great work. Go to hillsdale.edu and listen to their Constitution 101 class. Watch it. Have the whole family watch it, too. It's terrific. And we can't hear the story enough about the founding of our country. John Adams' story, the Boston Massacre, the Boston Massacre Trial, here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 